And so we might say this is an experience of the void. Hey everyone, Josh here. Thanks for tuning in to a special Digital Void podcast. Today, I'm conducting a special one-on-one interview with freelance culture writer Moises Mendez II. Mendez will be a speaker at Digital Void's Meme in the Moment Festival on Wednesday, October 27th at Caveat New York City. He'll be joined by Garbage Day's Ryan Broderick, NBC's Callan Rosenblatt, The Verge's McKenna Kelly, Insider's Rachel Greenspan, cultural strategist Matt Klein, and memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. It'll be a fun celebration and interrogation of how memes travel from digital space into physical space, live, in person, underground, and fully vaccinated. Tickets are available now at caveat.nyc or digitalvoid.media. Ahead of the Meme in the Moment Festival, I wanted to take some time to chat with Moises to discuss his journey to journalism, his excellent piece for Rolling Stone about queer baiting, the flattening of representation on social media platforms, the bad art friend, the connection between Gabby Petito and Couch Guy, and his favorite memes. Just one small correction before we begin. In this episode, I accidentally refer to Les Moonves as the head of NBC. He was actually the CEO of CBS, and the statement I referred to was said out loud and not as a tweet. Let's get to it. I am so delighted to be joined by Moises Mendez II, a freelance culture writer covering digital culture and entertainment through the lens of race, gender, and sexuality. With that, he covers celebrity controversies on social media, influencer drama, LGBTQ plus online culture, and the adult entertainment industry. Moises, thanks so much for joining. We're three weeks ahead of Meme in the Moment. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Uh... I'm nervous, you know, like being a young journalist and like, this is kind of like the first time I'm being asked to like talk at an event. So it's kind of like, you know, imposter syndrome, but I'm feeling really good about it and I'm excited to talk. Well, your work is amazing, and we're honored to host you for Meme in the Moment. And I really think that your work is making such a meaningful contribution to public discourse, and you're helping to bridge the gap between what's happening online and how it influences physical space. So it's really a privilege to talk to you today as well. But let's start with your background. What motivated you to begin a career in journalism? And can you tell us about your journey to it? Yeah. So I kind of, I grew up uh, like 45 minutes north of New York City, like kind of in a suburban area. And I remember like the day that I remembered I wanted to do journalism because it was kind of like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, I was talking to my mom and I just remember I had like been watching E! News like that entire week. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to talk about celebrities and you know the crazy things that they do so you know i started doing like a weird little like instagram about celebrity news and it was like really small but i would just like constantly post on it about it and then i like got asked to write for a blog and that was like my first time writing celebrity news stuff and i would just write whatever i wanted so it was really fun and i got to just like i was like my first instance pinching and i was like just graduated high school So this was all very new to me. And then after that, like I was in community college, started doing that, transferred to a a four-year university, went to Fordham. I did journalism there. And I feel like when I went to undergrad, I 
almost stop doing it because I didn't enjoy my time. But after I graduated from Fordham, I went to the CUNY J School, the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY, because they make us say that entire long name. But um, I started learning everything that I know about journalism from grad school. And it made me like, it just like reinvigorated me to do journalism. So I started to get really excited about doing that. And then after that, I just started freelancing. So so your journey was from Instagram account to blogger, to mm-hmm. college education, to graduate school, to mm-hmm. uh, freelance writer. And you've had a lot of success mm-hmm. in the last year. I It feels mm-hmm. like I can't go more than like two or three days without seeing another incredible byline from you, uh, from your Rolling Stone piece earlier this year about queer baiting to your two pieces that were published with the Huffington Post this week, which we'll dive into. Can you speak a little bit about what it was like creating that first Instagram account? And um, did you have a plan going into it? Or was it something that you just began posting and the crowd followed? Yeah, I feel like there was no plan because I was a child. And I was like, you know what, let's just I mean, I'm passionate about this thing. So let's just like find a way to put out the information that I know that I just want to share with other people. So it was like, coverage of red carpet events. And um a lot of Rihanna because I was also, I still am a big Rihanna stan. So anytime she was out doing something or going somewhere, I would like get a picture of her, just post about it, be like, she was doing this. None of this was an AP style though, because I had no idea what that was. (laughs) So I learned a lot in my last couple of years. But after that, you know, once I was like reached out to by this blog, that was like, hey, do you want to write for us? You seem like you know a lot about entertainment. And I was like, yeah, why not? And then it kind of just you know, stop from there. I don't remember what the Instagram is called, but it might be still up to this day. <laughs> it's lurking somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not necessarily the easiest career path to pick getting into journalism. What were some of your obstacles? You've had bylines nearly across the entire spectrum this year, but what are some of the biggest obstacles from pitching to keeping a consistent work ethic? <sighs> Discipline is the biggest obstacle for me just because if I don't have a lot going on in my life it's hard to just be like okay well here's all the things that we need to do so trying to keep myself busy is the hardest part but pitching I remember was probably the hardest part because I remember there was a story that I believed in so much that I was like we need to get this up you're gonna pitch Vice you're gonna pitch the New York Times you're gonna pitch everyone and they just went unanswered and like by so many different people. And it's like the biggest like hit to your ego when you're like, why does nobody want this really good story that I have or even tell me why they don't want it. So that was just like the hardest part in, you know, trying to get my stories out there. But also just when you do want to do stories, especially within digital culture, I think the biggest obstacles there, especially for me as like a person of color, I feel like I have to explain a little bit more about certain things in different niches than I would if it was just like a very general white topic, if that makes sense. And it's not the biggest problem, but it is a problem. And it's mainly because there's not a lot of people of color in these spaces. So that's why it's always heartwarming to see whenever there's like, you know, who are your favorite POC digital culture writers? And then I get tagged in it. I'm like, oh, 
<laughs> so nice. Thank you. You know, but there's a lot of other people doing great work at other places that I can name them all, but I just can't remember them off the top of my head. Um, but it's like nice to be able to like see those people and be like, okay, cool. I can work with those people and they know what they're talking about and they know what they're doing. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, to overcome some of the institutional barriers is something that you're doing incredibly well. And, and it's certainly a true compliment. I'm wondering how do you react when you have a story or what is your strategy when you have a story that you are so passionate about, you work hard on, you pitch, and then you don't have a response. Is this a situation where in a creator economy, like you try to find a Substack or publish on medium, like I, I know a lot of creators who are are doing a lot of writing and, and don't necessarily know where to put it mm-hmm. if it if they don't hear back from a pitch. So I mean for me, it was kind of a better idea to put it on the back burner and work on something else because if it's not getting picked up, then it's for a reason. Most of the time it's because cold pit, cold pitching is like not the easiest thing to do. And you have to really connect with an editor to like make sure that your story makes sense. You know what you're going to do when you you report out the story. You have to, you know, make sure the pitch is in a good format. And, you know, all these things that they teach us in grad school, they give us a a big pitch format. They're like, you should do this, this, and this. Uh, And even if you do all that, still doesn't work out. I always find it best to just put on the back burner because if it's evergreen, it'll be evergreen for forever. And then once you start to build up those contacts and you're like, hey, I have this other story that's just sitting here. You could also do this. And then sometimes it works out that way. And my stories have, have been like that where they're, you know, I had this thing from back in the day that I'm like, Oh, I could do that. And then I pitch it to the editors. I'm like, Oh, I'm interested in that. And then work on it. But doesn't happen all the time. So <laughs> it's it's definitely an obstacle. And I, once you establish those relationships, you're able to produce more of your work. And and it's really mm-hmm. important. I want to yeah. pivot to the first story that I ever read of yours. For full disclosure, mm-hmm. I became aware of your work because Rachel Greenspan uh, recommended you to be a speaker at Meme in the Moment. And then I found your profile and I did some research. And the story of yours that I first read is currently the story that's pinned to your Twitter profile. It was a piece for Rolling Stone, and it's titled Why Queer Baiting Matters More Than Ever. And it's a fascinating and important story that is framed around Billie Eilish's Instagram post promoting her lost cause music video. So can you explain what queer baiting is and why Eilish got called out for it? (laughs) Oh, God, I feel like people are going to be upset if I explain it because there were people that read the story and, or didn't read all of it and still got upset about it. But what queer baiting is and what I've been told by the experts that I interviewed is when uh, public figures like celebrities, musicians, anyone uses their, their sexuality's ambiguity to sort of promote a new project that they're doing. So when Billie Eilish got called out for it, It was because, you know, at this point, there's still to this day, like even recently, she got asked by a magazine, do you want to talk about your sexuality? And she said, absolutely not. That's nobody's business but my own. And when she did this Lost Cause music video, she had a bunch of girls. They were like, you know, it was a whole sleepover music video and they were all just like dancing and having a good time. And, you know, people thought like, oh my God, this is Billy being like, you know, just pandering to the lesbians. And it's like, oh my God, she's queer baiting. Which in the article, I also talk about how 
a lot of these accusations don't hold any water because at some point we've gotten so far into this sense of wanting to be right all the time online that people are just pulling anything from thin air and are like, here's a thing and we're going to make it a thing, which is why Normani also got accused of it with her wild side music video. And hence Cardi B who read the story or read most of it and got upset that she was included in this because they, people make good points, especially the credit, the critics of the story and saying that nobody's sexuality is, should be up for debate or conversation. But when it comes to the queer baiting conversation, it's it's a fine line to walk because people are thinking that, you know, there's some sort of malicious intent behind the people that are pandering to their queer audience. But I don't think the celebrities themselves are doing it with that intent. And it's just something that's gone so far. It's been super convoluted. And it's just... It's a mess, is what Caribbean is. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of it you attribute to the toxicity of social platforms, right? Like later in the article, you dive into the pros and cons about having discussions about queer baiting online. So mm-hmm. what? So if there are accusations that are thrown around, some correct, mm-hmm. some not, we see the pulling of evidence from kind of anywhere people can to try to justify their argument in a similar fashion that people use evidence uh, in a digital space to try to justify a conspiracy conspiracy theory. But in what ways specifically are you seeing that these digital spaces and social platforms are harmful to these discussions more than they're helpful? There are times when I think the the best example is of the Normani debate when which really wasn't even as big of a debate as people made it out to be. I think it was more just a conversation about, you know, someone making this really long Instagram comment about how she's queer baiting and this is harmful to the queer community and blah, blah, blah. I think it's super harmful when someone goes off on this really long rant using buzzwords, trying to make a point that is not, it's not there. It's like people are just saying anything. And I think, you know, people are just trying to be loud, but end up being wrong. (laughs) Too frequently do they end up being wrong. It's the internet in a nutshell. They want to be loud, but they're always or most often wrong or incorrect. Unfortunately, and that's why I love the internet, you know? It keeps me entertained and it gives me a lot to write about. (laughs) So speaking of a lot to write about, you published two excellent pieces this week for the Huffington Post. The first was about TikTok star Tally Dilbert and her viral videos about being Black, Latina and Honduran and how she uses her platform to encourage young Afro-Latinos to speak up and to be themselves. This story is also connected to a second story you wrote about Instagram star Gilbert Sosa, who founded the content houses Tejas House and Stories House. Can you explain these stories, how they connect, and how these creators are giving platform to traditionally excluded voices? Yeah, so the idea came from Erin Evans at the Huffington Post. She's a wonderful editor. Uh, She reached out to me and she wanted us to do two profiles on TikTok stars, um, especially Latinx for Latinx Heritage Month. And she had suggested Tally and Gilbert. She said that she found the Tejas house on TikTok and she thought it was really interesting that they're one of the first bilingual content houses on TikTok. And it's a big change from 
you know, the normal content houses that we've seen, like the Hype House, the Team 10 House, all of those mainly white people doing something in these houses. I'm getting paid for it. Um, <laughs> Taking VC money. <laughs> exactly. So when I talked to both of them, they talked to me about their experiences about like not only living in a content house with like eight other people, just, you know, being Latinx online is a different experience in and of itself. So they connect because Tally is a part of the Tejas house, which Gilbert founded. He said that he found her like through some, uh, some of her Instagram reels where she was sharing tips about, you know, how smaller creators can reach out to brands and, you know, if they want to work with them. And, you know, ever since then, he wanted to make sure that he had a diverse cast of creators for his, you know, bilingual content house. So the Tejas house was like, they, they make content that is geared towards Latinx people who speak English and Spanish. And, you know, they, they make some fun content where they talk about like the typical conversation within the Latinx community about how not all of us are the same. And we even pronounce things differently. We call things different things, which is why I struggle watching like a Mexican American show because I'm like, what are you saying? I don't understand that. Like there are some words that just are not the same because I'm Dominican. So it's just, it's, it's interesting to see young people like this, which it's funny because we're the same age, but young people like this uh, talk about the differences within our cultures, but how we are connected in different ways. And and that's so interesting to me because I in one of the articles you discuss like this kind of flattening that happens in mainstream Latinx culture, um, and it was it was controversial over the summer when Lin Manuel Miranda's In the Heights was released. And so there was an issue where uh, In the Heights producers cast predominantly light-skinned Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. And are you seeing that these hype houses, or, or rather these content houses, are um, introducing more nuance and new language to communities that are really hoping and that deserve and are hopefully being granted greater representation? Mm-hmm. I feel that the content houses are a step towards representation, but it's a really long road ahead of us. And a lot of it has to do with TikTok as a platform itself and the algorithm and what it supports. Because anytime I think about the TikTok algorithm, I think of the piece, I think it was by The Intercept that talked about the types of videos and what is had in certain videos to be boosted on the platform. And it's like, you know, the background has to be nice and it has to be like a nice house. It has to be certain things that a lot of white people have. So in that, it makes sense that the white people are getting boosted and people of color are not. Uh, So that's a big step that needs to be changed to get representation to a better place than where it is now. I think the Latinx community on social media is making strides to be better, but it's still sort of a homogenous, I guess would be the word. Um, it's still it's still homogenous. I feel like there is not as much 
or at least I'm not seeing on my For You page as much of a diversity amongst the Latinx people or creators. There are some that I really enjoy that I follow and I'm like, you make amazing content. I wish everybody could see you. But I always like, <laughs> I, I it warms my heart to see other Dominican creators. And I'm just like, those are my people. I like, you know, like missing this lady. She has over like a million followers. She's just this like uh, Fox News anchor for like, I think, I forget where she lives, but she's very funny. And she like, you know, pranks her husband with her news lady voice and like her family with it too. She's hilarious. And there's this other creator who's like, uh, she made a, she's a Dominican creator. She made a video talking about like, I forget what exactly what it was. But she said something like, no me importa, which is like, not important to me. But she kept repeating it over and over. And then someone <laughs> turned it into like a Dembo remix. And it was the funniest <laughs> thing ever. And I heard it all the time. And I'm like, this is my queen. I love her. She's like, Whatever she's talking about. Yes. <laughs> she She's not just an amazing creator, but she creates viral, like viral memes. And, yes. and she's she becomes ubiquitous in the culture. Yes. That's, I love that about her. I just, I, I think for me, I love seeing just like Dominican people because obviously growing up as a Dominican person, there are things that are shared within a Dominican community that is like, oh, you say this a certain way, you're making this sort of food, you're saying these certain things. Like, you know, I just, I miss hearing that accent and, you know, just just the way that, you know, people say things. I think it's so great. <laughs> that's, that's one of the great features, the few, one of the few great features of social platforms, right? Like that intimacy, that it, it's a, te- social media are platforms of distance because it helps close the distance between two parties or connects communities. And that's like the central promise of it, right? The internet. Um, so it, it's, it's wonderful to see. I, I want to look at, and I feel like you may have just uh, revealed what one of your favorite cultural trends currently is but i want to look at your favorite cultural trends right now what are you most captivated by and what trend are you most puzzled by Mm -hmm. oh my god there's so many couch guy is like just this thing that will not stop and everybody's fucking talking about it like i literally before we got on the call i just finished an episode for like a podcast episode from slate i see why am i with madison malone torture and Rachel Hampton, shout out to those two because they make one of the best podcasts. And they were just talking about uh, this saga and parasocial relationships. And I'm just always fascinated by parasocial relationships because I feel like no matter what, no matter who you love online, you have some sort of parasocial relationship. And it like forces you to examine that in yourself. And you're like, okay, wait, do I have an unhealthy relationship with some sort of internet figure that I love? Like, do I have a tattoo of Rihanna's anti? Yes, I do. But <laughs> this is this is a different conversation, okay? I feel, like, I feel like we are all just fascinated by the ways in which people will fall down these rabbit holes, uh, which is why I love this Couch Guy saga, because I'm like, who gives a fuck to begin with? <laughs> you know? Like, it's really not that big of a deal. Um, and it's none of our business to begin with, but they put it out there and everyone's just examining it. But other cultural trends, I love right now, like especially on TikTok too, 
I always love the people who do like the the voiceovers and they'll have like the computer in front of them and it's like some sort of iconic scene that they'll just like pl- like say as the video is going. One of my favorites is like the um Shrek like the gingerbread man <laughs> um but in Spanish <laughs> I think it's hilarious and the way that they say it is just perfect. Um but also like anything from Jersey Shore because Jersey Shore is iconic in and of itself like I think it's a beautiful touchstone for all of us you know and it's like it's like 11 or 12 years old now so it's officially the stage where it's it's vintage it's not even new I feel like you know I talk to a lot of my friends and a lot of like just colleagues in general about like my cognizance of pop culture and when I started to be like fully aware of cultural moments and Jersey Shore was that for me, where I watched it every Thursday with my friends, every single season. Well, I put, probably stopped after like the third or fourth because there's too many. Um, but just the ways in which it like influenced a culture and just like how to this day, it is still just so entertaining to watch. And that's just the basis of it. Like, yes, they're all terrible people and they do terrible shitty things, but God, it's hilarious, and I can't stop watching it. <laughs> it reminds me of Les Moonves's tweet about uh, the 2016 presidential election, um, and he was the head of NBC, I think, where he said, uh, "This is horrible for America, but amazing for NBC." Mm, yep. And I was just like, "Oh." Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that just feels like so much of our relationship with the internet <laughs> and cool. and pop culture. Yeah, I don't think, you know, anyone knew it was going to happen when they decided to put this thing out for everyone. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like, to me, a lot of the people that appeared to, like, want to drift or grow audience out of the Gabby Petito saga, and as soon as that ended, it couch guy like became popular and the same type of deconstructionist infinite game style tactics were you know and and it was almost like people were longing for another game and and what netflix doesn't get is you don't need to create bandersnatch to do this you just need a viral tiktok a mildly suspicious tiktok yes and the guy batito thing wasn't something i followed closely but i understood what was happening and i just watched it off from the sidelines and i was like so y'all are crazy. And again, shout out to the ICYMI podcast for doing a fantastic episode about the ways in which people get so caught up with like missing white women. And, you know, it's the missing white woman syndrome. And then they also talk about like, well, if this is happening and, you know, it sort of is like in a way like police propaganda in a sense. Yeah. I, I think that's just one of the most fascinating sagas that like, has ever occurred and there will be too many more but i think also i'm fascinated by the bad art friend thing like the new york times story i don't know if you read that i I saw it trending this morning i didn't read it when i tell you that is the spiciest story about white women that i've ever read in my life it is absurd like basically (laughs) this woman dawn donated her kidney and her friend who she thinks that is her friend wrote a story about a woman who donated a kidney and it was this whole 
thing about like, does art imitate life and where does inspiration draw from? And is her friend a bad person for basically writing about her kidney donation? But the friend argues that it wasn't about her. It gets so spicy. And towards the end, just just wait for the end because (laughs) it gets hilarious. When I tell you I was sitting here just laughing because the absurdity of it all is just so great. But yes, discourse surrounding it, I think I love these things where anytime some big, beautifully written stories like get talked about on writer Twitter because writers care a lot more about things that get written. And same thing happened with like the cat person and, you know, all of that fun stuff. I just think that I love seeing writers talk about different trends that they're seeing and, you know, how funny they are. Yeah. I love what you said. Writers care a lot more about things that get written. And you doubled my (laughs) excitement to hear an art piece that's not focused on Christie's or NFT or Gary V. So we talked about that before air, but it's just nice to see that uh, other alternative writing about the art space still exists and and can mainstream. I mean, I think, you know, if there is one thing that I'm perplexed by is, is NFTs and why people are so excited about them and why people spend thousands of dollars on these things. Because I've written about NFTs more than once, which, you know. Rest in peace, your inbox. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Every morning I wake up to at least one PR pitch about, do you want to write about this person's NFT? And then it's just like, I got one about like jerky or something. Like I think Slim Jim was doing an NFT or something. I don't know what it was. I get the most random crap and I'm like, I don't even write about this. (laughs) Why are you asking me to write about sports? (laughs) I've never written a sports thing ever. Like, (laughs) Oh, wow. So looking ahead at the future, in a few weeks, we'll be live at Caveat in New York City for the Meme of the Moment Festival, which is the second Meme of the Moment Festival in three months. We were supposed to do this as an annual event, but we wanted to really help to create and cultivate community and space for uh, writers, journalists, academics, and people to come together to find meaning in bridging the gap between what happens for those that are very online and those who are maybe not so pathologized to being online. And in doing that, I have to ask, what is your current favorite meme and what is your favorite meme of all time? Oh my God. My favorite meme of all time. Oh God, you put me on the spot here. <laughs> I feel like this question always gives people anxiety. Yeah, because it's like, okay, I have to pick a good one because there's so many of them. <laughs> um, well, I think right now, especially reading the Bad Art Friend story, my favorite meme is anything that has to do with the girls are fighting, which is like, the Azealia Banks thing where she was like on live and like people were arguing, I think, or something. And she was like, the girls are fighting. The girls are fighting. And like people have like memed it so much. So when I tweeted out the art, the bad art friend story thing, I like posted a meme that was like presidential alert. Uh, the girls are fighting in all caps. Um, <laughs> that one is my current favorite. But I think my favorite of all time, it's hard to say. Can I look through my meme folder? Yeah, yeah, of course. Oh my God. I love it. It it, it becomes research. (laughs) Yeah, like I need to make sure that, you know, whatever one I pick, it's a good one. Oh, it's right there. (laughs) Well, okay. So there's two different things that I'm thinking of. 
And the first is of this video of Rihanna being asked for free tickets. In that, <laughs> they ask her, they're like, hey, Rihanna, can we get free tickets to your show? And she said, y'all motherfuckers make enough money off of me. Free tickets, free tickets, these nuts. And then she rolls up her window. But there's another video of Rihanna. They're asking her something. You can't really hear what they're saying. But you just see Rihanna rolling up her window and rolling her eyes. And it's a known thing that Rihanna can't blink well. But, I mean, she can't she can't wink. That's what it is. She can't wink, but she can roll her eyes. And she does it very fantastically in my favorite meme. That's amazing. And Moises, where can people follow you and your work ahead of Meme in the Moment, after Meme in the Moment, as as they keep up with you? Um, so my Instagram and Twitter handles are Moises Fenty, M-O-I-S-E-S-F-E-N-T-Y. Amazing. Thank you so much, Moises. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again for tuning into the Digital Void podcast. Once again, we'll be live at Caveat on Wednesday, October 27th for the Meme in the Moment Festival, Make It Spoopy. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we hope to see you there.